0: Where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, costume designers, production designers, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, authors, even choreographers, you name it, we talk to them. And boy, oh boy, here we are. It's a countdown to the end of 2023. We've got today's show and two more. For this year, uh, before we kick off year nine next January, Uh, I'm very excited about today's show. have some amazing guests today. We're going to kick, and she's already on the line now, and I'm going to bring her live in just a second. Catherine Corman is with us to talk about her film, Little Jewel. It is long-listed for the Academy Awards for the live-action short film section. And this is truly a gem. I am in love with this short. Uh, And I can't wait to talk with Catherine about it. I don't know her father. You know him, Roger Corman. So the apple isn't falling too far from the tree with uh, Catherine. Um, I don't... There was a... I had a glint... That maybe he might be joining us today. I don't know. Uh, but we'll find out in a moment here. And then at the midpoint of the show, two guys that I cannot wait to talk to, producer Jay Tyroff and director Nick Decay, they're first-time documentary filmmakers. They're both stuntmen actors, but they are now documentary filmmakers with the craziest story you're, you're going to go nuts when, when we talk about this. And when you see the film, The Ark of Lilburn. Um, it is a hoot and a holler. I laughed through the whole thing. And when, I, the, when the guys are on the line, you're going to find out why. But And by the way, if you didn't know, I am Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, so, without any further ado... I am so thrilled to welcome Katherine Corman to the show. Hi, Katherine. Hi. I can't tell you what a thrill it is to have you joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you. That's so kind of you.
0: Uh, you know, I have long admired your dad's work. I even interviewed your dad a number of years ago. Um, oh, well, well he's, he's here on the line. Oh, my God. Roger. Yes. Hello, Roger. Welcome. Mm-hmm hello nice talking to you once more oh Roger this is a real treat and this is so special for me to have a dad and daughter
1: uh,
0: <laughs> combo here um, you know and you'll be able to, you'll be able to see this Catherine um, after uh, I'll be posting images but on my I do a tablescape for every show and in honor of you I brought in my Bell & Howell Super 8 camera that I used over 40 years ago in college making films. Oh my god. So,
2: <laughs> I have
0: it on display here and I will make sure when I post the pictures that I tag you so that you see it, but I thought this is perfect. Aww. A lot of people That's amazing. A lot of people forget about the beauty of Super 8, but I have yeah. to tell you when they see little jewel they're gonna fall in love with Super Eight again. This, uh, oh, I
1: hope
0: so. You know, Roger, how proud how proud of of Catherine are you with this little gem?
1: Oh, if you could speak up a little. Oh,
0: Roger, how proud are you of Catherine uh, with this little gem of a film that she's put together?
3: I'm totally proud
4: of what she's doing now, but I'm proud. Of everything she's done since uh, she was able to walk. Aww.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I have. Catherine, why don't you tell us a little bit about Little Jewel and the impetus for telling this story? It's a beautiful, it's 12 minutes long. And it is, for my money, it is so haunting. It is, there's a poignant beauty to it that. And there's a timelessness while it feels frozen in time. You, it, it, oh, well, It's so emotional you. watching this. So tell me the impetus for this and, and, you know, where the idea came from.
1: Well, this really came from um, during the pandemic. My sister and I drove across the country to go home and be with our parents. And um, we went through the list. Of the BFI, AFI, and Kaiju Cinema um, 100 Greatest Films with my father. And he sort of made his master list. And that was our (laughs) pandemic. It's just like every night we watched another film on this list. So it came out of that. You know, when you're just watching films all the time, that becomes your vocabulary. That becomes like the way you think in images in a way. And I've been reading a lot of Modiano, and it just became really clear to me how I would make his books into films, into short films. So I wrote to him and he granted me permission and we just made them, like on Super 8 with my father and my sister and then a couple friends from around town. Um, So they just sort of organically came about in that way. Wow.
0: Now, how do you cut down a book by Modiano into a 12-minute
1: film? So his books are not really traditional narrative right? in the way that you think of like the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is sort of meandering. It's like many different poetic voices. So just focusing in on the story of little Jewel, um, there's a lot that can be paired away. If you just want to tell her story in a visible way, you know, beyond just like what she's thinking, right? just like watching her um it it was fairly simple to do
0: and i like how you translated this from paris in what would have been around the 1950s to downtown los angeles
1: yeah i i they actually feel sort of similar to me like um I really love the Saint-Germain-des-Prés in Paris. It's where my father spent time as a student, and we've gone back as a family, and the whole mythology of the artists and writers and everyone there. And I have just a really strong sense of what that feels like. So even though I couldn't visually translate Paris to L.A., empty downtown at night with all the old historic buildings. hmm evoked that feeling in a way of like walking through Paris at night where so much of their cultural history is preserved and you do feel like you're walking out of time like you could be in the present day you could be a hundred years ago
0: yeah and it's you watch this and I was so swept up and captivated by this and I love the look that you have with the super eight It looks very much like a gauze effect, almost like a Greta Garbo kind of effect with the cheesecloth over the lens, that it gives Mm. you this dreaminess and the candlelight warmth that you have uh, of the lighting, outside and inside in one hotel room, just absolutely
1: beautiful, so beautiful, Catherine. yeah Yeah, it's that's the thing about super eight it's so um forgiving yes (laughs) and I'm not that technically skilled as far as lighting is concerned and that sort of thing so it just gives you that great gift of being able to go out and make a film even if you don't know exactly how um and that lush feel to it that forgiving feel sort of it's it almost feels sort of velvety to me. Mm-hmm. Um, really translates through. So that's something. I, one of the many reasons that I love to create
0: so much. Yeah. And what I love is you can really, without much effort, really get some space. I was always known for. I love to try and get sun flares with it and aim it up at the sun, yeah. filtering through trees, yeah. and I'm getting. I got was getting the same sense watching your film, of what I would do when i'm shooting in super eight and it is it's lovely
1: well thank you and that's something that like early film is so important to me like i really love silent film i really love a trip to the moon in the cabinet of dr caligari Mm -hmm. and there's that sense with those films that like film itself is magic I mean, nowadays we take it for granted because it's all around us. But when it was brand new, it was like this magical form. Like you could hardly believe it existed. And I feel like that with um, Super 8, like as you were mentioning with the sun flares and everything, there are these sort of happy accidents. Yes. When there's like a little rainbow effect that just comes out of nowhere, <laughs> it reminds you of the like magical quality or element that film is to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
4: I can on a little bit. Uh, I worked, when I shot a lot of films in Europe, and I shot several films with Nestor Almendes, who went on to win an Academy Award. And what he did, he used natural lighting. Uh, he just turned on the lights that were already there in the room. And if they needed a little boost, he had a couple of small electric lights that he could plug in. So what Catherine had, that gave a very natural quality. So what Catherine is doing, possibly without knowing the reference to Nestor, is that she's following the natural lighting of an Academy Award. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, Catherine's also following... Uh, another brilliant filmmaker, and that is you, Roger. Um, you know, did you have any input into Catherine's plans for Little Jewel, other than appearing on camera as a wonderful, you know, giving a recitation of a poem?
4: Well, uh, I think it worked in a slightly different way, as Catherine said we were watching almost every night, not every night, but almost every night, these classical films. And when they were over, we would discuss what was in the films. And I think she learned a great deal from that.
1: Yeah, and it it was really incredible because my father would just tell us, you know, about these films from every aspect imaginable. Like sometimes it would be, you know, technical comments like, oh, you know, um, a certain director is using this kind of shot much more than this other director would in this scene. Sometimes it would be like personal reminiscences about the actors who had been in the film we'd seen, who my father had worked with through the years. Um, And sometimes it would be more of like a, a critical sense of the film. Um, so it was, it was just, like, the most encyclopedic, deep film education a person could ever hope for.
0: <laughs> you know, Roger, I'm curious, what, as, as a filmmaker, not as a father, but as a filmmaker, what is it about Catherine's film that, that stands out to you that, that is indicative of this being her voice as a filmmaker?
4: a number of things. First, for use of the camera. The shots are very well composed and they fit uh, what is going on. So from a technical standpoint, the picking of the shots, the use of them, when to have a set shot, when to have a dolly shot, and so forth, uh, that stands out very well. Plus, for working with the actors She acted, actually, in several films for me when she was younger. So I think she learned all of that. And I thought from a technical standpoint and of working with the actors, uh, she was and is is brilliant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now this begs the question then, Catherine, you know, how tough was it working with this this new actor named Roger Corman that you had in your film? Did he follow direction? Well,
1: we were having dinner with um, the director of Drive My Car, um, and I told him I was I was shooting the film at the time, and I told him my father was in it, and he played a revolutionary poet. <laughs> and he said, "Oh, that's tight casting. Your father <laughs> already is a revolutionary yes. poet." <laughs> <laughs> and this, the character he plays is an Eastern European poet who comes to Paris to study at the Sorbonne. And he's very influenced by a French poet from centuries earlier who was a thief and wrote all of his poetry in jail. And I gave my father a lot of like research material about that poet. Um, so hopefully that was you know, of some help. But I was just really lucky that he was really supportive and, you know, agreed to be in it, and it was really wonderful.
0: Now, did he take direction well? You know, these young actors, sometimes.
1: (laughs) Well, we tried it a couple of different ways because the poem is about, it's like written by an older man, but it's about being a young boy and his mother not being there for him. And when he's older and he's more of a political poet, he realizes it's because she had to work and the capitalist system and you know, inequality forced his mother out of the home and, and you know, having to do all this work. But when he was young, he just felt the sorrow of being a young boy and your mother not being there,
2: mm-hmm. which kind
1: of reflects the main plot of the story of the film. Um, so we did a couple of different takes along different ends of that scale of just like the very personal sorrow edging towards the outrage at, like, a system that would allow this to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I have to ask you about two aspects of this short. You packed so much into 12 minutes, Catherine. <laughs> you know, obviously, whether you realize it or not growing up, I think you were very strongly influenced by possibly watching your father. Uh, yes. Yeah, obviously. Um, because... Yes. Roger always packs so much stuff into his films that you may not realize until you start dissecting it. And you have so so many wonderful elements here, not the least of which is using the radio play, The Wasteland, that Jeremy Irons and Eileen Atkins uh, are performing over the radio. And then the beautiful Igor Stravinsky piano piece. Oh, my
1: God. That just
0: sweeps you away.
1: I got so lucky with both of those. So I was trying to think for the Stravinsky, who was walking around Paris at that time? Like who was walking the streets of Paris at that time and felt what it was like? So it could infuse this piece with that mood. And of course, this is what I came up with. And then The Wasteland, I was actually thinking of of trying to find a Beckett play at first Mm. because this is when... She's on the phone, she's calling the member of the home where she used to live, and it's abandoned. So, that sense of like vacancy, isolation, like you can never go home because there's no home left. And that's like so much the project of modernism in a way. And I read through like all of Beckett's plays, and I didn't find anything that felt quite right. And then I just thought of The Wasteland, and I was reading it, and it was immediately clear that was just the right tone. And then I was. Very, very lucky the, the BBC allowed me to use their recording of Jeremy Irons and Eileen Atkins. So their voices are sort of wafting in on the phone lines, And telling this tale of alienation and isolation.
0: And what you beautifully do with the sound is you don't clean it up, such as we hear so often today if something is coming through the radio or a Bluetooth yeah. or something. No, this sounds like a real... Use the dial, tune tune the radio, and you you may get some static in there because uh, the transmitter is not the signal isn't quite right. Or well, I
1: actually put some effects in there. To, I well, okay, I love, more, I love it. I love it. Make a phone call from far away.
0: Oh no! I mean, just spectacular. Now I'm curious for both of you. Is there a chance that you might co-direct a project? Especially for you, Roger, <laughs> at this stage of the game. I mean, you could just sit back on your laurels. You don't have to do anything. Um, <laughs> but I'm really curious if we could have a dad-daughter direct co-directing here.
4: I, I doubt it. Uh, I think if you have a few times uh, people have co-directed, and uh, I'm not certain that works uh, that well. Uh, I would prefer to sort of sit back, let Catherine do the directing. I might comment once or twice on what she's doing, but essentially it's her film to direct.
0: Well, Now, will we see you directing any more films, Roger?
4: Uh, It's doubtful that I will direct again, Uh, I'm 96 years old now, and uh, directing uh, people think of as a glamorous, creative (laughs) job, and it is, but it's also very hard work, because you work so long, in other words, normally uh, businesses function on eight hours a day. You can't do that on films, because it takes so long to set things up. That you end up almost invariably shooting at least 10 hours a day, and often uh, considerably more than that. So, I'll let the other guys direct, and as a producer, because the director starts at six in the morning, I'll show up as the producer around nine and say, "What'd you shoot that shot for?" <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, my gosh. You know, I I would be remiss, given this opportunity with you, Roger, to not ask you about your thought on the state of film today, especially with um, so much going to streaming, with theaters trying to make a comeback, um, a big resurgence. We're seeing one this year. But I'm curious about you for your thoughts on the state of filmmaking today.
4: Well, for one thing, streaming has taken over as the number one source of income. So you're really making a film for streaming, and a few films do get a theatrical uh, release. For instance, the Marvel films are technically brilliant, and they consistently rack up high grosses they don't have that much of a story. The story is almost a fill-in between the special effects. And somebody asked me this before, and I said, I think they should do what Jim Cameron does. Jim started with us, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. Jim puts the story first, and then the special effects serve the story. And I think that's the way it should be.
0: Now, uh, Catherine, you know, you're also an accomplished photographer. You have other films under your belt. You know, now you've got this, and I, I hate to, to just keep referring to it as a gem, but Little Jewel truly is a gem that I really Thank hope you. the Academy members take notice of um, because the live-action short category is always a very, very jam-packed, tough category. But based on all the, the shorts I've seen this year, yours is head and shoulders above the rest.
1: Oh, that's so kind of you to say. And I, hopefully if you know any Academy members are listening, one thing that I have found that has resonated with a lot more seasoned, you know, experienced filmmakers is no matter how you know people say the industry is so industry is so hard and they get tough and that sort of thing. but as with you, when they see Super 8, it sort of takes them back to their memory of the first time they made a film in college or in high school with a Super 8 camera, and it like it brings that magic back in a way. So I hope that's something that resonates with people.
0: Well, I know I know one young filmmaker uh, who really made an impression on me uh, several years ago at LA Film Festival, Theo Taplitz, and Theo loves to experiment. He's in college now. And he's still making films and doing other forms of art, such as photography and, you know, mixed media. But, yes, Theo Theo has open invitation. He wants to use my Super 8s, because I have two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and both of them are about... One is... One actually was my dad, so it's very, very oh, wow. old. Uh, and then the one I have with me here in studio today is mine um, from
1: 1977. Oh, that's amazing. It's, and it still works.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. My, dad wow. would, would, my dad would would my dad come back from the beyond, and, you know, my behind might be a little sore if I didn't take proper care of my electronics.
1: <laughs> 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 well, that's amazing. I mean, they're treasures, those old original cameras. That's wonderful that you still have yours.
0: Yeah. But where do you see, with your many interests, such as photography and your, and your films, where do you see your career going
1: now? Um, it's kind of on a project-to-project basis. I don't have, like, an overarching plan. So um, we'll see. It's kind of at the intersection of literature and photography is, is where I've always sort of lived. So hopefully continuing on in that vein.
0: Now, going back to Little Jewel here. For I also, your sister actually plays Little Jewel in the film. Yes, yeah. You know, Dad can't get all the glory here as being a <laughs> revolutionary poet. Um, we've got to give Mary, uh, you know, Mary Tessa. She's got to get her shout out too.
1: Um,
0: yeah. A, as Little Jewel I mean, herself,
1: she, she wasn't just the lead she also um she's an artist so she did all of the art for the film oh. so like the title card and the poster for the hot chocolate company that she sees in the metro my sister painted all of those as oh well my. so i've just been lucky my family was so supportive and happy to pitch in
0: well and you know when your family pitches in on a film like this it really helps that bottom line dollar amount Yeah,
1: Yeah, our budget was a hundred dollars. It was just the price of the Super Eight film. That was it. So
0: And I have to tell you, it looks like it cost a lot more than that. It really (laughs) does. It really does. But
1: Well, we had such beautiful locations, so we're lucky at downtown LA.
0: Was it difficult to find the specific locations, Catherine?
1: No, because I grew up in L.A. So when I was, I had the locations before I even had the screenplay because I was trying to figure out, like, will this book work? Am I going to be able to do this? And when I had the outline, I just started slotting in places I knew in L.A. So, like, I knew, like, you know, some people say, like, oh, I wrote this part for a specific actor or something like that. It's like I wrote this thinking of downtown the whole time and all of the specific places I was going to shoot.
0: I Just outstanding. So, you know, Roger, how exciting is it for you as a dad and as as a filmmaker, a very prolific filmmaker and revolutionary? Let's get that (laughs) and get to stress this. But how exciting, how important is it to you to see you've got Mary Tessa following in the arts with her painting. You've got Catherine with photography and film. Um, did you ever think that you would have such talented daughters? <laughs> well,
4: I hoped that they would be talented, and they've turned out, I believe, to be very talented. Mary is a painter, and she's had two gallery shows in New York. Uh, the first, with every painting sold. The second one, almost every painting sold. And Catherine moving forward on film, I'm delighted uh, that you're carrying on and hopefully uh, surpassing what I did.
0: <laughs> okay, Catherine, do you have a favorite film of your father's
1: that has influenced you? Well, my favorite is The Wild Angels. I think his favorite is The Intruder. Um, but, yeah, The Wild Angels, to me, it just, I mean, as with Modiano, it just captures that whole time. Like, you see that film, and you feel exactly what it was to live in that time. And, like, what people were going through, the way they understood the world, the sort of blankness of it, but then the drive to move forward anyway. That's absolutely my favorite of his films. Oh my.
0: Do you have a favorite of your films, Roger?
4: Uh, I've been asked that before, and I would say, actually, there would be two favorites. One was The Intruder, Mm -hmm. which is about the integration of Southern schools that I made in uh, 1960. The other would be Mask of the Red Death, a film I made in England and uh, was sort of the culmination of my Edgar Allan Poe films.
0: (laughs) And I want you to know, Roger, that when I was in college, I was watching your films. They were part of the, the classwork, the film tutorials. Um, so when I came out to L.A. over 40 years ago, um, and, and then I finally got to speak with, sit down and speak with you in an interview about one of your films... It was one of the highlights of my life. And now to get to talk with you and Catherine both today, an absolute thrill. <sighs> absolute thrill.
1: Oh. Well, it's so kind of us to have you. And this has been a really wonderful conversation. Oh. So thank abs- you.
0: I hope I get to speak with you with you both again in the future. Definitely you, Catherine. Um You've made a fan of me. You've made a
1: fan of me with your films. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm I'm really glad we have this super eight connection that we're both Super 8 filmmakers.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> Catherine, Roger, thank you so, so much. This has been a real privilege and treat to have you on the show today.
1: Oh, thank you for having us. This has just
4: been incredible. So oh. we're really appreciative. And have I a- can say Thank you very much also.
1: Oh,
0: you are more than welcome. I am humbled, Roger, absolutely humbled. Have a wonderful holiday, the two, both of you, and hopefully oh, you and hopefully, we will talk again in the future. Yes, we'd love to. Thank yes. you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Catherine Corman and the legend himself, Roger Corman. Oh, guys, I had my fingers crossed. Santa came a little early for me this year. I can tell you that. And now we're going to shift gears here. And we're going to talk about the Ark of Lilburn. I'm ready, Pam. All right. And let's see. We should have J. Tyroff. And Nick Decay, are you there guys?
3: Uh this is we Jack are, and I I'm am. here.
0: Okay. Who have I okay, Jay, you there? Yeah. And Nick, you there? Yes. Yay. Well, you know, I didn't know if all the trouble of, of moving a boat from inside Porter Steel in Lilburn. Uh, all the way up to Tennessee and out to Marina. I didn't know if all that confusion may have translated into the, into the telephone system today. Glad that it (laughs) hasn't. Um, Guys. Yes. I got to tell you, I, when I got, Karen sent me the, the info on this film, even before she had a link. And she goes, I think you're going to want to see this one. And i Read the little synopsis about it, and I'm like, you know, this sounds really interesting. Somebody has a boat, a steel boat, in the middle of Lilburn, Georgia, north of Stone Mountain, northeast of of Atlanta. And it's like, why are they building a boat in the middle of of a landlocked area? Uh, So I thought, yeah, I want to see this. And then I start watching this. I laughed through the entire documentary. You have captured and created. You could have easily called this Porter versus Ponytail. <laughs> I, this, this just, you've got this guy, Low Porter. He starts building his Moby Dick, so to speak, his, his dream. Uh, uh-huh. in 2002, my God. And now, all these years later, well, I think I'm going to move it. <laughs> but this is where all the hilarity starts. I mean, it's one thing to build it unless you decide, yeah, and you've got your son, who's your VP of your company now, saying, Dad, we need to get it out of here, out of the warehouse. Um, building it, no concern with lo- with logistics. The way you have cut this and put this together, you've got everybody who's been working on it who works for Porter Steel. Nobody knows how big it is. I I love, we see the one, one of the guys there with his little calculator trying to calculate how much this weighs and comes up with 900,000 pounds at one point. And (laughs) (laughs) it's just one thing after another. And the whole process of trying to find a company that can even move this boat. And for whatever reason, why they went with a house mover to begin with, I don't understand. Um,
5: <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I believe the reason they went with the house mover is every other logistics company had rejected them. Well, yeah, it's um, easy
0: to see why. They,
5: they just got desperate.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. But this is where the comedy in this really comes in because of the personalities between Low Porter, Cole Porter, and these, vi- and, you know, Mr. Ponytail. Uh, which it's just hilarious to watch this dynamic that you guys have captured um, as to planning. And then, uh oh, does this guy really know what he's doing? And. Where where did this even start? This is not the kind of story that just pops out in the news or something like that. Um, where oh. did you even find this little, this behemoth so, task?
5: So Jay and I were um, we were filming a sh- uh, proof of concept of a uh, movie that, that I wrote and um, Jay found Porter Steel, uh, because we needed this uh, location to be kind of a dilapidated, post-apocalypse-looking place in a steel shop, kind of had that look. And then Cole said, oh, yeah, you should see the boat. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and kind of location scouting it, um, as filmmakers do. And he keeps telling us, oh, you got to see the boat. And we're like, sure, let's go see the boat. And he said, like, yeah, it's in the other room. So we're like, okay. We go to the other room and we're flabbergasted you know we're like that's not a boat that's a yacht that's a ship yeah (laughs) what is it doing here um and then jay says to cole well if you move this thing you gotta let uh us film it and cole's like well i really want to move it and he's like well we should meet with your dad and talk about it and uh and we you know we filmed our proof of concept and Jay kept in contact with Cole and kept kind of heckling him about this idea of us filming it to the point where Jay got us a meeting with Lowe and got him to agree to let us do it. Um, It was really Jay's persistence (laughs) more than anything that got us in there.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Lowe is just a, you know, old steel worker and he, he has no idea about Hollywood. so me, going in and asking him for, for money, and I me mean, wanting to stick a camera in his face was, you know, comical to him.
0: <laughs> yeah, how, well, the comedy comes through in the documentary for anybody who watches it because it's available tomorrow. It comes out tomorrow. Um, yes. You know how do you even start this? Because they have no clue. Cole wants this, the boat gone. It's like, and I think every worker at Porter Steel wanted the boat gone. Um, how do you as filmmakers even start with this once Lowe says, yeah, okay, fine. You can, you can film us moving the boat. Um, did, no. did you have a timetable? Um, this just blows my mind because of the disorganization and the conflicting mindsets of the players here. It, i just keep thinking you guys must have been ready to like kill somebody or just go jump into a lake if you could have found one uh I'm, or throw <laughs> somebody in i'm not sure Uh, tell me how you approach this after lowe said yeah you can film us
3: yeah well, well we essentially you know um you know wanted to shoot this in 25 days so we had an idea of you know, when the boat mover was supposed to come and hopefully he could get it out of the building this day. And and in between that time, we would set up interviews and kind of, you know, explain, you know, what Porter Steel is, a little bit behind the company and Mm -hmm. what people thought about the boat. And in that 25-day span, you know, nothing ever goes according to plan. And obviously with Ponytail, I mean, his idea wasn't to cut the boat in half. It just really just, you know, kind of...
2: Spoiler alert. <laughs>
3: yeah. And, and they tried to get other boat movers, and, and they were just being, you know, schemy. It, it, it's a weird industry with boat movers.
2: Mm.
3: And it, it essentially just pushed everything out until February 2021 is when we wrapped, you know, physical production on the project. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And um, it, and Cole was actually
5: pretty gracious. He gave us an office in Porter Steel. Nice. For our film crew. And, you know, if you could imagine a film crew on an indie documentary, uh, we're not exactly culturally compatible with steel men.
2: <laughs> and
5: uh, so we had this, you know, kind of young group of 20-somethings, um, you know, and we're in the steel factory every day for months. And, uh, you know, we're just there with cameras waiting for things to happen. And, um, and you know, also we're, obviously we're doing interviews and all this other stuff, but we're, you know, we were there kind of in everyone's business for, for months. And uh, they were shockingly patient with, Wow. Uh, that
3: helped.
0: But there was a lot of waiting for you guys, I'm sure. A lot of waiting.
3: Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh-huh. COVID didn't help either because we were shooting this in the middle of COVID. And, you know, a bunch of steel workers aren't going to wear masks on set.
0: <laughs> That's right.
3: <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. They, were, they, they were troopers. And, you know, if we needed to get an interview, they would be gracious enough to stop what they were doing and just come... Talk with us for thirty minutes, or however long we needed
0: them. Wow, you know something that, that I really love that you include in there is you get the feedback from the workers, especially when they're talking about the quote unquote the handmade rigging that uh, Mister Ponytail brought to move <laughs> this boat, and you've got the imagery there. And I'm looking at this and. That steel looked like it had been rusted for forty or fifty years.
4: Uh, oh yeah,
0: and he's and then he's yeah. smiling on camera. Well, I made this. I just made this in my shop, and it's like, yeah, maybe forty or fifty years ago. This is not brand new anything. Um, no, no. He's moved
3: a lot of boats with that with that steel, it, or a lot of houses. Houses,
0: afraid, yeah. yeah. I it just. <laughs> And I'm looking, and with a straight face, he's passing this off as, I made it for this. And it uh, was mind-boggling.
5: Yeah, Yeah, he was a very interesting person because he would say things that, you know, so confidently— it was like if he wasn't in uh, moving, he should have gone into politics. <laughs> um, you know, he's, it was really fascinating, kind of watching that all that transpire. Because I, I once asked him like how far the boat was off the ground, and uh, and he tells me that it's you know six inches off the ground, and he's standing behind it, and I can see that the back of the boat is three feet off the ground. Yeah.
0: I um, it, I loved but, all the tape measure was, scenes. I I just I cracked up with, yeah. with all the tape measure scenes, especially him with the tape measure. Um <laughs> it, and it's like the tape measure is bent over in half. I just and you're you're capturing such your camera guy, I don't you were shooting with what? Four cameras and a steady cam or three cameras and a steady cam?
5: So we had uh, yeah. our primary was, was three cameras, one of which was on study. And then mm-hmm. we had, uh, kind of a backup camera operator who was, um, on a different camera system that was just there to run and find stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, I, the, you know, we juggled the cameras. I held the camera a lot. Um, our cinematographer ended up holding the camera a lot. We were just, it was a constant juggle to make
0: sure we were kind of in everybody's business the whole time. Well, I mean, you've got some incredible images there where, you know, you've got the camera right down in there, which, quite frankly, I would have been petrified to do because it did not look too secure with that boat sitting on little pine blocks uh, that are splitting. Yeah. Uh, But. It's like I'm waiting for the thing to fall over. You know, every every <laughs> scene transition. Okay, is the boat falling over yet? Um, yeah. Because you're giving us all of this chaos. It, it, this was no holds barred with you guys. I gotta say, you were showing the good, the bad, the ugly.
5: Well, uh, yeah, we we wanted it to be, you know. A, uh, non editorialized as much as we could showing of what happened.
0: I just now so, it was, you mentioned something important, non editorialized, which leads me to ask about the editing process here. Were you editing as you went, or did you wait until you had all of your footage and then start? We waited, yeah, trying to assemble this and find a through line. <laughs>
5: So the, the editing process was a lot. Um, we had roughly 400 hours of footage.
0: Is that all?
5: Between <laughs> <laughs> yeah, between all the cameras. And, um, you know, and I, I went into the editing process uh, tr- trying to, without, without an idea of exactly how I wanted this story to go. Um, I mean, obviously I knew what had happened. Um. And I, I knew some themes that I wanted to m- make sure people saw. Like I thought the the dynamic between Cole and his father was very important, mm-hmm. and um, you know, just I, I, hopefully it comes through in the piece. But you know, Cole really never gets acceptance from his father.
0: Oh no, that is um, obvious. I mean that that spoke so loudly to me,
5: and that's and that's something that I think a lot of men have dealt with is not being accepted by their father. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I thought that was an important kind of theme. And so I I knew that I wanted to craft the narrative uh, with that in mind, but we just kept watching the footage. We'd go through our, uh, our notes. We had a script supervisor, uh, Carly, who was incredible. She gave, I think a hundred page PDF document of notes. (laughs) <laughs> so we were able to take those notes and try to craft together some kind of a narrative and our editor curtis um and kevin was our assistant editor on it they uh they they spent weeks assembling it and then um uh, we started editing you know we were in the editing room probably 50 hours a week
0: oh my god
5: you know or, wow you know, and it was uh it was a lot and Jay came out pretty regularly and would sit in the sit in the back of the editing room and, uh, you know, yell to Curtis and I. <laughs> he was, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was it was a lot of fun.
0: Well, because this is your first film, you're both accomplished stuntmen. Uh, I'm curious because this is your first film. I mean, if you're going to make your first feature, your first feature and th- as a documentary. This is actually a pretty good subject to start with because you got a lot to work with here. Um, you know, what? What was the learning curve like for you guys to jump into actually running the show?
3: I mean, it was uh, oh, I, I, Nick I, and I definitely I learned a lot um, doing this, and you know, being stuntmen and doing that for you know, almost 17 years now. Um, Nick and I both ran departments as stunt coordinators mm-hmm. so, and as stuntmen and stunt coordinators. You know, I think we're one of the very few departments that has our hands in just about every department, whether that's camera, wardrobe, hair, makeup. So we, we know how the machine
2: works.
3: Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was necessarily a really big learning curve, but um, we definitely learned a lot. And I think on our next one, we will do things a lot differently and I think it would go a lot <laughs> smoother than it than it did our first go-around. But I think all in all, we, uh, I think we did really well for what for what we had.
0: Well, based on what I see on screen, I think you guys did an amazing job.
3: Oh, we,
5: we you. appreciate it. You know... Yeah. What, and I think our production actually went really smoothly, in my opinion. The... Post-production was tough, but I think production was actually as smooth as I've seen any feature film go.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and I mean, and yeah. you, you guys have worked on some pretty impressive stuff. I mean, Jay, you've done The Blind Side, Ford versus Ferrari. Nick, I mean, stunts in Wakanda forever. Come on. Um, <laughs> y- you guys know big. You know drama. You know big. Um, so, I did. not you would know if something is going smoothly or not, or relatively smoothly. But I can understand with post production, that's going to be the biggie. And part of that post production, which, and this is what really tickled me with the arc of Lilburn, is your scoring, the music you have. I'm listening to this, and oh, you have elements of music that, you know, we've got almost, you know, the spaghetti western you know a, yeah. or a bad day bad day of black rock we got a confrontation coming here <laughs> you know as oh the, yeah as the boat starts moving we've got a, another shift a tonal shift with the music talk to me about what you wanted with music and how you came up with it with what you have because that so, is so fun and works so well
5: so yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I was a I'm a trained musician myself, so very music is very important to me. And um, there's a, a stunt woman in town who I've worked with quite a bit in my career, and her husband Jordan was uh, is a music composer. And so I met with him and told him that I had this idea that you know Cole being kind of this self-made man who lived this kind of American dream, is kind of like a mythological character in my mind. And so I wanted it to have the, like the mythological character of the the gunslinger of the, of the Old West. Mm-hmm. So I wanted it to have that spaghetti Western kind of Sergio Leone feel. I'm a huge fan of Benicio Maritone. Um, so that's where we started. And then um, we totally shifted to more of the kind of Hollywood fanfare uh, westerns mm-hmm. when we started moving it. Um, you know, away from more of the darker Sergio Leone mm-hmm. kind of feel to more of the, uh, you know, the stuff that would have had, uh, what's his name, the Duke. His name is escaping me right now. But um, John anyway, Wayne. John Wayne? So we, John Wayne, <laughs> thank you. More of like the John Wayne kind of western music as the uh, the boat moves. And Jordan and I just spoke the same musical language, and he was fantastic. And, you know, we I, I definitely made life hard for him. We would go through sometimes, <laughs> you know, a hundred revisions on a track. Wow. Before we got it exactly how we wanted it. But he was a trooper, and, uh, you know, <laughs> he earned his money, I'll tell you that.
0: Yeah, and I I love that you just said that you made it hard for him because there aren't too many filmmakers that will actually admit that they have made things hard for one of their de- <laughs> one of their department heads <laughs> or somebody. <laughs> um, so I'm very impressed by that. But I just the music just is so much fun, and it really all it does is heighten what we're seeing unfold with these personalities and with the chaotic situations uh, at, yeah. their, at their various stages. And, you know, once the boat starts moving, uh, I think this is, I can't, how challenging was filming that? Because I have to tell you, I saw the one truck that you had a camera mount on it, um, and that whole logistic procedure of what the moving company had to do in terms of roads and railroads and electrical wires and things like that and you were right there capturing all of this i think that might have been more challenging for you than actually being at porter steel um with all the different personalities all running around in the same place would that be a fair assessment
3: uh, i I mean uh so for jay yeah, I, I said I would agree with that. I mean, the the logistics of you know moving that boat on these roads on a Friday afternoon, or actually the whole day on Friday, uh, which was I think was Halloween, or no, not Halloween it was supposed to be Halloween. No, this was a uh, January 29th. ninth. Um, was just a nightmare, and we were supposed to have police escorts, which we didn't get. <laughs> so we had to use like parts of the crew to help with traffic, and um, and then people were just getting pissed off, and they would just cut the cut through us, and yeah, we were getting a lot of that on camera, and yeah, it was crazy. And we would go through like small towns, and we would shut the whole town down because we had to get this boat through there, and it would take up the whole road, the whole ro- the whole the whole road. Well, and I... it was crazy.
0: I gotta tell you, you guys I mean my heart stopped a couple times during the move the transportation sequence when you've got these other vehicles on the road and they're actually cutting off this big rig towing this boat um you know oh, fi- yeah. a 50 50- <laughs> cutting and cutting off not just going around it but as he's trying to make a turn and the the guy just cuts right in front zigzags going at a really high rate of speed and i thought for sure it's ending here it's ending here
5: (laughs) there were a few times that got really close um one thing that uh, we haven't mentioned is for all of our camera vehicles we we hired stunt drivers to drive them
0: smart move
5: so and um one of my early mentors in the business andy martin yeah, he actually was the first guy to let me stunt coordinate uh, a day on a movie. He was the driver of the our my camera vehicle, which was the A camera vehicle. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and he he was one of the like primary drivers on Talladega Nights. Um, he's an amazing stunt driver, and we had him in there close to get a lot of those really neat and kind of daring shots. Um, we had set up our Steadicam rig in that van, and he drove it like, you know, we would do a car chase.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so I, it,
5: was, it was neat.
0: Well, I I really love the shots that you were getting from the the cherry picker. Um, that poor guy who was sitting out there, you know, freezing as... As the vehicles are moving, and it was his duty, he had to lift those wa- electrical wires and things. Um, oh yeah! Really great povs that you captured there. Really amazing.
5: Yeah, I think Jay rented. Jay, I think he rented what, like twenty GoPros or something
3: to make sure we had cameras on everything. Yeah, we <laughs> we got a lot of a lot of cameras everywhere, really
0: you had to for the different for the amount of angles that I'm seeing on screen. I in my head I was trying to envision where all you know you've got cameras everywhere. And so it amazed yeah, we, me. We
5: rigged them all over the all over the boat, all over the trucks, everywhere. Anywhere we could put a GoPro logically we put it.
0: <laughs> so now yeah. at the end of the day, as everybody is going to be able to see the Ark of Lilburn come tomorrow on all the usual suspect di- digital platforms, you made it through your first film as filmmakers, as, as producers, directors. What did each of you learn about yourself as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, in making the Ark of Lilburn?
3: you want to go first, Nick?
5: Sure. Um, I would say, for me, the, the, my biggest takeaway is um, to drop my preconceived notions of what the story is going to be when I go in. Um, and really learn to be open to how the story might unfold in ways that you didn't expect. And what about uh, for you? Coming from narrative we have a pretty good idea of what mm-hmm. it's going to be if you have a script, and that's a blueprint. Right. Whereas in a doc, you have no blueprint. And um, what I thought it was going to be on day one versus what it is now have almost nothing to do with each other.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. And how about for the other half of this dynamic duo? <laughs>
3: Um, My biggest takeaway is Nick and I having careers as of stuntmen, um, I think most people would expect our first film to be very action-y, and we actually told a story with no action. We were telling a really good story with good storytelling, and we're not shooting big Crazy scenes with shooting and fighting and stunts. We're just shooting a story and telling the story. And I think Nick and I on our next films will be able to tell something even better.
0: Now, do we have a next film in mind as of yet?
3: We have. We've got a whole ten project Um, film slate. So we're we're we've got a few up our sleeves.
0: Well,
5: yeah, we're trying to get them funded at this point.
0: Oh, uh, we have yes, a,
5: do- a documentary and uh, several narrative features.
0: Would you now? Do you feel confident, having done this documentary? Do you feel confident you can tackle another documentary, maybe up the ante some, absolutely, as well as narrative, Oh,
5: absolutely. You know,
0: narrative. You guys oh, come yeah, out yeah, of absolutely. you guys come out of the stunt world narratives. And yeah. stuntmen are my favorite people in the world. Um, I have been, I was, no, seriously, I was mentored by many uh, of the old, the old crowd, you know, the Al Wyatts, the Picurnies, the uh, Bill Hart, the, uh, yep. the the old guys, Neil Summers, um, they took me under their wing when I first came out to L.A. over 40 years ago, and I learned so much from them, and then through everybody else. Um, You know, the good Mr. Hooker, who's still running around working today. Um, Oh, man, he is.
5: (laughs) I just saw him a few months ago. Crushing it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I have great love and affection. So when I see stuntmen up the ante like this to even make a film, and then to see how good it is, Guys, you won me over. Believe me. I can't wait. We appreciate it. I can't wait to see what you do next. I'm really looking forward to it.
3: We will have a lot awesome. for you. Thank you very much.
0: Well, guys, unfortunately, we are out of time. I hope you're both going to come back on the show again when you get another project going. Because um, I definitely, you, definitely, I definitely want to follow your trajectory, your non-stunt trajectory, uh, and see what you do as filmmakers, as producers and directors. Uh, because what I've seen here is you have a great eye for storytelling, and you know how to visually execute it. Uh, so, I want more. <laughs> well,
5: we hope to deliver. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, yeah. we've got, we got Jay's tenacity. Does <laughs> anybody tenacious enough to, to uh It's gonna be Jay. To reality, it's definitely Jay.
0: Uh, guys, thank you, thank you so much. And again, I'm going to remind all the listeners tomorrow, all digital platforms, the arc of Lilburn. Um, you you got to see it to believe it, and you're gonna love it. That's all I can say. It's you're gonna love it. It's great. Thank you so much, guys.
3: And Thank you. We appreciate it.
0: And you have a wonderful holiday season.
3: Yeah, you too. You as well.
0: Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: And that was Nick Decay and Jay Tyroff talking about First time, first time documentary filmmakers, The Ark of Lilburn, you got to see it. It is, it's a kick in the ass. To be blunt, it's a kick in the ass. Um, it's wonderful. And for all the Academy members out there, Catherine Corman, Little Jewel, it is, it is a real gem in the live action shorts. And I hope that you will give it your greatest consideration as. Uh, During this award season leading up to the Oscars. All right, that is all the time we have today. We'll be back next week. We're going to be talking about the series Grounded with the filmmakers. So, looking forward to that one. And you can actually check if you want to get a head start on next week's show, find out what we're going to be talking about. Grounded is actually airing on Tubi. So, and then. December 19th, my pal, singer, songwriter, actor, producer, director, Frank Meyer. Frank is going to be here in studio with me. And we're going to close out the year in style and insanity. Uh, So, again, big thanks to Catherine and to Roger Corman and to Jay and Nick. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.